Design Podcast. On this week's deep dive into basketball culture and Indiana basketball, we're joined by Galen Clavio, Director of Undergraduate Studies for the Media School, Associate Professor of Sports Media, and the Director of the National Sports Journalism Center at Indiana University. There's been such a dearth of actual accomplishment with IU basketball over the last decade. I feel like, yes, it was a success. It's not an unqualified success. But you have to make incremental steps forward. We finished by talking about how shows like Winning Time and athlete-produced documentaries are changing the sports media landscape. I think it's there's a big difference between reading words on a page and seeing somebody acting that out. <laughs> like, that really is ultimately what bothers passionate, me. Passionate love scene uh, yeah. inserted here. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, and, and I get that. I get, you know, and, it's, it's, it, and I think he's it's... A te- he's a tender change. lover. He just wants people to know that. <laughs> That's right, you know. So. It's time to start the show. Yeah, isn't it amazing when Michigan can keep this game to a 19-foot-9-inch game inside that three-point line, it's all there. Welcome to the 19.9 Podcast. I'm Aaron Meyer. I'm here with Galen Clavio and Robert Wire. Excited to talk some IU hoops. They've had an eventful offseason, really an eventful two years. Uh, But I want to just start where we start most podcasts, uh, just asking Galen about his origin story, how he got into basketball, and, you know, the larger kind of sports media question, because I think you're in an interesting position uh, overall in the sports landscape. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, guys. It's great to be here. Uh, Big fan of... uh... Uh, of both the podcast and the company. And uh, yeah, the origin story is interesting. It's uh, out of the womb, I guess you could say, <laughs> growing up in Indiana. Yeah. Uh, it's funny, you know, my so my dad was a, a military brat. Okay. And he ended up landing in Bloomington, Indiana in 1966 as wow. a 16-year-old. And he, for the first time really in his life, because, you know, he lived, they lived in Japan, they lived in, in Taiwan, they lived in, in Hawaii, like all these places that didn't have sports. He had like a graduating class in eighth grade of like three people. <laughs> uh, so he goes from that to attending Bloomington High School back before there was a Bloomington North or Bloomington South. And he gets exposed to all these different things. And, you know, one of them being basketball, which, you know, as, as even then was huge in the state of Indiana. Yeah. So he gets the bug as a teenager going up to the Indiana, the, the new field house, as they called it at the <laughs> time, watching Vern Payne and Jimmy Rail and, uh, you know, that whole group of guys from the 60s. And then you know, he goes to IU. He, he doesn't finish. He marries my mom. And Bob Knight gets hired when he's 21 years old. Good timing. And he becomes, <laughs> he becomes a, a Bob Knight fanatic, as many people did in the state of Indiana during that time. And... Um, you know, he, he joins at a great time because, you know, Indiana goes final four in 73, uh, almost undefeated 75. They win it all in 76 and he's hooked. And that was what I was born into. In fact, my sister was due on March 30th, 1981. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the tough story is tough choice here coming up. That's right. Yeah. The story of the house was, you know, he was, he, he, he gave explicit instructions. She's not going to be born until after this. She ends up waiting two days, which was, I think a good Very thing nice for her. her. She's, <laughs> she's like, the even, chosen child then for sure. Huh? Even, even like my grandmother on my mom's side, who has very, doesn't knows nothing about sports, but she buys me apparently a North Carolina onesie and sends it and my dad sends it back uh you know like this is this is this is what i this is what i was born into and i grew up in largely in the lafayette area ironically as an iu fan i was never really good enough to play sports but i loved watching sports i loved college basketball in particular uh you know it was i was in second grade iu wins the national title little did i know that would be the last time i would get to experience that but I've been hooked since then, yeah. and it's it's been a huge part of my life, essentially my entire life. That's awesome. That's so great. So I, I so I'm reading your bio too. I got I'm gonna sidebar quickly. So I saw that you have a role at WIUX, and you went to IU as well, correct? Yeah. So what's right. what's the role at WIUX? Because uh, many people may not know this, but I was once an on air DJ for WIUX. Had my own nice. uh, radio show. <laughs> 
That, yeah, I mean, that was where a lot of people got their starts. Yep. And, you know, there was no instruction Nothing. or anything. Like, it's like, <laughs> hey, you've got, you're, you're, I remember my first air shift. It was like one to three in the morning <laughs> on like Thursdays. Like, what am I doing? Like, yeah. but, uh, so I was, I was actually, I was a director for three years as a student in the okay. late 90s at WIUS. It was still called at okay. the time. And I came back here as a faculty member in 2009. Okay. And I became the faculty advisor for WIUX, which is the student radio station in like 2014. And so I work with them closely. I really work with their sports department very closely on a variety of things, uh, as well as the rest of the station. And, you know, it's, it's one of those deals where it's cool because it's like, wow, I was in that chair 20 some years ago yeah. doing exactly the same thing that the students are doing now. Have you got the board updated? Because, uh... <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny now because um, there's, you know, they're doing a lot of stuff with podcasts yeah, and I've got a lot of expertise in that. So yeah. a lot of it's like getting like, hey, have a roadcaster. Let's yes. see what you can do with this. It's, no a, it's a little bit better setup now than it used to be. For sure. For sure. Okay, let's let's get just quickly into the season that was. I know we're, we've moved quite a quite a bit past that now, but I, I want to ask, I'll throw it to you, uh, Robert, first, just talking about, do you feel like the season was successful? And if so, what what reasons? Because I just I have my own opinion, but I kind of want to hear from you guys first and just see what what you think of about the season that was. I mean, I think that the season was successful. I mean, we made it back to the tournament. I feel like we got the monkey off our back, as they would say. You know, like I think that it had to get in the players' heads the last couple of years. Every time we'd start losing, they at the end of the year they had to be thinking, "Is this going to happen again?" So I think the success definitely gave them confidence for next year. The ones that are coming back. Uh, I mean, I, I feel like there was, I mean, it seems like the last couple of years that we've had a lot of injuries. You know, I like the Trace was talking the other day and, you know, you could tell there was a problem, you know, after he fell in the one game. I can't remember which game it was. Like he wasn't the same player for a while, you know, and, uh, you know, with the other injuries like Rob are, getting wait, out. Are you giving him the hometown discount there because... People aren't doing that for Chris Paul or uh, Devin Booker. Well, no. So are we, are we just giving that because we're IU fans? I mean, that's what IU fans <laughs> do. I mean, I mean, let's be honest. Like, we try to look at the best whenever the season's over, I guess. That's how I do it, I guess. You know, I try to come up with all the positives and try not to hang on the negatives, right? Because obviously we were excited at one point in the season. We thought it was going to be easy tournament, right? Like, we're in. And then it just does what it's been doing. And then you're like, we're not even going to make the tournament. And then all of a sudden Michigan game halftime comes and you're like, where's this team been all year? <laughs> you know? And then it's like, boom, boom, boom. And you're like, well, maybe we got a chance to do something, you know? So I think it was successful in my opinion. Hmm. And I think what's in, I think he's going to be better moving forward. I think it was an adjustment. You know, he was used to pro players and I think he thought that, you know, I don't know what he thought, but I, in my opinion, what I think he thought was, you know, like specialized players were going to play their role, but they're still college kids. And, you know, they some of the players didn't live up to what we hoped they would before the season. Hmm. Well, so I'll plug my podcast, which yeah, is Crimson get, get in there. The uh, longest uh, running IU podcast, I'd like to say. That's right. Yeah, we started when nobody was listening. And sometimes <laughs> I wonder if anybody still listens. But uh, no, you know, it's funny because this was a back and forth that Scott and I, uh, my podcasting partner, had uh, pretty regularly on this season. And I feel like, yes, it was a success. It's not an unqualified success, mm -hmm. but you have to make incremental steps forward. I think people you know, there's been there's been such a dearth of actual accomplishment with IU basketball over the last decade that I think people have it in their minds that we're just like one season away from being a Kentucky or a Kansas or a Villanova. And the fact is that it's like a four or five year cycle to get back up to that level. And the talent that's been brought in has not been up to the task of competing in the Big Ten. And all you have to do is look at the statistics and, and the, the standings and I think that tale proves itself. Mm -hmm. It was a mismatched team with a bunch of pieces that really didn't fit together, a bunch of guys that struggled to do the roles that they were assigned to do, a lot of which involved outside shooting. But the fact that Woodson was able to come in, 
get a defensive identity together for the team and have them really stick with that for most of the season. And the fact that for the first time in a long time, when the chips were down at the end of the season, <laughs> they reeled off a couple of victories, nearly won that game against Iowa and won a game in the NCAA tournament. I mean, that's more success than I use had in a while. Uh, so, but it's got to be a building block. And I think ultimately for IU fans, if, you know, most people still have these romantic images of the 80s and 90s. We're a long way away from that. You go back to that gradually, and this is the type of season that helps to build towards that. Yeah, I like that perspective. I think that's it definitely felt good uh, at, at the end of the season, while parts of the season definitely did, did not feel like a success. But, uh, you know, sometimes you end on a, on a high note, and that's that's the, the snapshot that you have of, of the season overall then. And I don't think, I don't think it's wrong, but I, it was, I was stunned to hear that IU was one of the only teams or maybe even the only team in the Big Ten in the last, like, 10 years or five years or whatever the stat was that ha- didn't have a winning record in Big Ten play. I was just like, wow, it was – crazy to think about that we're not even getting above 500 in conference and for for long duration so to make the tournament to to you know run off a couple in the big 10 tournament which we're terrible at it seems like every year uh is is at least an accomplishment i think that that leads into the off season so i wanted to flip then there and start with the assistants and just get we'll, we'll i'll go to you first galen this time and just kind of get your thoughts on First, the shakeup, you know, we had a pretty major name and a legacy at IU leave, and then some guys elevated. You have holes coming in. Just the, you know, I, I don't know. It's just it's different to have the yeah. two, the coaching shakeup, and I listened to you guys a lot last year uh, talking about the big coaching shakeup at the top, but to see that still kind of, you know, sorting itself out uh, is, is pretty interesting for a program because I think that part of that success you were talking about is building stability in there. Well, it is, but I think it's also building harmony mm. among the coaches. And I look, I know Dane somewhat, uh, you know, I, it was, we were in grad school at the same time. I got nothing but good things to say about him as a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's clear that there was a, a personality conflict yeah. between him and Woodson. And that was, I think you need to get that taken care of as quickly as possible. And, you know, I would have liked to have seen it handled a little bit better, but these things are what they are. I don't know that it's really going to matter in the big scheme of things in a negative way, because I do think that a, a harmonious group and the fact that they elevated somebody who was already in the program as, as director of basketball ops into that mm-hmm. assistant role, and they bring Jordan Hulls, who's obviously been around the program a bunch over the course of the last decade, it feels like there's going to be some continuity there regardless. I think a lot of people got freaked out about the, the change behind the scenes, but this is where I think sometimes we have a tendency as fans to get caught up in things that may not actually have a huge functional difference and may actually be better in the long term because you'd rather have everybody rowing in the same direction. And I think that that's ultimately where I've settled on it. Time will tell. It may be that uh, you know something big got lost in that transition, and you hate to see a, a former IU great uh, kind of getting unceremoniously you know yeah. set aside on things. But by the same token is we've all been in work situations where, um, you know, there, there need to be changes so that things can move forward. And I, and I think that that was probably the situation here. I mean, there was just a lot of changes with the NIL transfer. I mean, you're going to have people that have different perspectives on ways to take upon it. And I think they just had different outlooks, you know, and right. it's, I mean, with the NIL, we just don't, I mean, it's hard it's, I mean, I don't want to say anything bad about it. I mean, it's a good thing, right? I mean, I think as an IU person, you know, like we got good boosters and we got, you know, they got the, the Hoosier hysterica, the collection agent and all that stuff. And I think that we're on the front lines of it, you know, so that's good. I mean, I'm not going to say I'm fully on board with how much some of these players are getting paid. I mean, I want players to get paid, but, you know, like the Miami thing, you know, like I think that was, you know, a little bit too far, you know, in my opinion, like. Maybe they should have a limit, so then it doesn't well, become a bidding war. You know? you know, it's interesting. You know, the NI, I just was talking about this on a different podcast yesterday, and I did a, a piece on it, uh, like a, a kind of a session on it for IU alums a few weeks ago. What you're watching right now, the the category of NIL is a neat way of encapsulating what is essentially the gradual professionalization of college athletics. Yeah. 
And the reason why it's happening so quickly and why we're seeing all this crazy stuff going on is because this was a market that was artificially suppressed for, for decades. Long? Yeah. yeah. And or, now or was it? It was just more an underground. Yeah. It was publicly suppressed. That's yeah. why, like I hear yeah. Saban whining about it. I'm like, you're kidding, man. You, got, yeah. you know, Alabama institutionalized, you know, some version of this 25 years ago. 100%. Um, you know, and, and so I look at it and yes, there's a lot of changes and I can see how the old guard, you know, people that played 20 years ago, people that played 40 years ago, look at it and say, this is a bad thing. I, I don't look at it that way. And I mean, I work with athletes really closely. I follow this closely. I research it. And, you know, A, as you mentioned, it was already happening in one form or another. And B, I don't have a problem with a college athlete making money, and it should be based upon whatever their market value is. I think some of the numbers you're seeing now are probably a little bit inflated, but let's use the Nigel Pack deal as an example. You know, Pack is getting, I forget what the amount of money is, but, um, you know, if he he generates an ad that gets like 3 million impressions on Instagram, well, that's $150,000 in market value right there. That's one ad. Uh, you know, we we, I think, even relatively young people like ourselves have a hard time processing how much money actually exists in the social media marketplace. And that becomes a part of this whole thing. Uh, And so the larger part though, is like, okay, we're essentially paying athletes to either be in school or stay in school. But again, it's like, that's, not inherently a bad thing. I don't think it necessarily, because again, it was happening already. It's just that we're learning about it now. And that's the big difference that people are having trouble processing. Well, they have a skill that people, that is valuable. Like that, that is the thing anywhere else in the world doing anything else. If you are, you know, one of the most talented uh, people, you're paid uh, commensurate with that, with that talent. So it's bizarre to not have that valued in in the same way. And there's just, there's so few of these guys that are this good uh, whether it be Trace Jackson Davis or uh, you know the guy that a guy at Kentucky, there's like five of them in the whole country, and less yeah. than you know, it's just crazy. No, I'm not against it. I just I I was just saying that. No, I didn't. I, think I feel that. like it was. I think it's going to get to the point where it's like two million dollars or three million dollars. You know, like it's just going to oh. keep going up because people are going to be willing. It's like you said, it's it's a market, right? So like. They're going to be like, well, if we can get Jackson Davis, if he went at the free market, right? I'm sure he could have pulled in, you know, he might have been able to pull in $2 million. Yeah. You know, possibly. because he's yeah. he's going to be up for player of the year, possibly. Yeah. You know, so. Well, on the flip side of it is ultimately, and this is where it gets confusing. It's like, because the, by what? I think by 2027 with the new television contracts. Hmm. Big 10 schools are going to pull in each about $100 million dollars. <laughs> in just television revenue per year yeah. per school. I mean, that's that's $1.4 billion across all of that. And that's not even money that's being paid directly to athletes. That's just going right into the athletic department coffers. Yeah. So the the market's all messed up right now because colleges have tried to have it both ways for so long. They're like, well, no, these are, these are amateurs. These are students. They don't get this. But meanwhile, their revenues have been going through the roof since about 2005 because of the television money that's gradually essentially change the face of college sports. And so, you know, you're right. These these numbers are probably going to escalate. But I also think that eventually the balloon will pop. And we're, right now we're in a bubble. And that bubble has been perpetrated by this idea that because it's out in the open, there isn't a set market value. Everybody's trying to find what that value is. Right. Once that happens, I think it settles down. But I do think there's a lot of intrinsic value for these athletes that people are willing to pay. Look at Texas A&M or Miami, where I taught for two years. Mm -hmm. Those are programs that are, A, desperate for success, B, have been second tier in their own states for a while now, and C, they know that the Alabamas and the Texases and the Georgias have this same system that they've perfected that you know, has allowed them to bring in top-level talent and compensate them under the table. So they're just like, well, fine, we'll just bring it above board and see what happens. And so it is, it's complicated, and it requires us to take a lot of what we've, like a lot of the myths we've constructed about college athletics and kind of set it to the side and look at the reality. And the reality is not always pretty. Yes, yeah, so let me ask you this then. Do you think this is uh, a good execution of how this because you, you mentioned kind of the almost inevitability like this was kind of this was kind of coming there was already this bizarre arms race where a lot most 
big colleges would have better facilities than a lot of pro teams would because the alumni just dumped money into that to try to outcompete the other schools because they couldn't pay the players directly. So it, it, I, I don't, I just wonder like, is this the best execution of something that seemed like it should have happened a long time ago in some form or another? Um, no, it's not the best execution, but this is what happens when you essentially try to f- keep something from happening for the longest time. And then, you know, essentially the courts said, you're not allowed to do that anymore. <laughs> And that throws the doors open. I mean, yeah, I've always yeah. likened it. This is something that, you know, you have to be a little bit of a sports historian to realize. But, you know, baseball used to have this thing called the reserve clause mm-hmm. in Major League Baseball, which basically said we have the right as a team to sign you to one-year contracts for the rest of your career until we get tired of you. Mm-hmm. You don't have free agency. You can't request trades. And, you know, through the 50s and 60s, baseball players are like, look, baseball is making more money. We're all doing better. We should be getting a little bit more cash. And baseball owners are like, no, we don't have to. We're not going to. (laughs) And eventually what that led to was Kurt Flood, uh, you know, suing baseball. And then Marvin Miller essentially orchestrating a lawsuit that resulted in unrestricted free agency. And all of a sudden, baseball went from having really cheap contracts to having the most expensive contracts in sports in a summer mm. or in a spring. Yeah. And that's essentially what I look at this as. Um, you know, you mentioned like the facilities, like to, to have like Washington state have world-class right. you know, facilities. It's like, wow, that was okay. All that PAC 12 TV money went somewhere yeah, and it wasn't yeah. players. Instead it was like the track and field facility yeah. that there that's kind of ill. You know, when you've got compliance offices that have like nine people right. working in, yeah. cause you got to put the money somewhere. I think that's a much worse outcome than what we're currently seeing. Right. Oh, that last thing I'll say on the NIL, because we totally got sidetracked with it. But there, there is one positive that, I mean, there's multiple, but the one thing that I do see is like people like players like Trace coming back because of it, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. like, yeah, maybe like for years you had the one and dones, right? So now maybe you're going to see players like Ethan Hyatt or, you know, like players that ain't going to play in the NBA, or, well, Trace, I'm not saying he's not going to play in the NBA. <laughs> I know but I'm saying, fired there. No, I'm not saying that. <laughs> I was just saying, in general, you know, you know, like maybe Race Thompson, if he doesn't make the NBA, right? This is his chance to make some money before maybe he goes overseas and maybe he stays longer in college basketball. And as fans, maybe we get better basketball longer. You know, like G League kind of put him on the spot with starting to give money, right? So this is a yep. way for us to keep, well, us, the way for college basketball that, you know, keep their players. Absolutely. I mean, this has always been the, the bizarre thing. It's like the NCAA as an entity makes its money off of the men's tournament. So what makes a good men's tournament? Good players. Yeah. So why wouldn't you operationalize keeping good players as much as you can to make the product that you're putting in front of people better? Same thing with conferences. And you can look at like football, like the Big Ten, their member schools make money off of the money they're able to make from advertising on Big Ten network games. So... I think you, you hit the nail on the head. The fact that you can get a Trace Jackson Davis, who I think in any other era of college of recent college basketball probably would have left after last season. Yeah. Um, okay, so you get another two years out of that guy, and it's a good financial deal for him because he's probably making more money off of NIL or something related to it than he would have made if he was playing in you know Lithuania or yeah. France or someplace like that. Two-way or something. Right. Yeah. You know, I, and I, I think with the revenue sports, uh, you know, if you look at college teams for what they are, which is essentially professional sports teams, professional brands in, in almost every way, this makes sense. And if you can keep good players that people have attachments to, that helps literally everybody in the process. And it hurts nobody in the process. It's mm-hmm. the only thing it hurts is this image we have of the amateur athlete which isn't even a great image. It's something the Olympics dumped 35 years ago. Uh, it's a it's an idea funny. that was derived from 18th 19th century England, yeah. which you know to justify keeping we got, labor. We're, we get rid yeah. of every other idea from back then. So I mean, right. why are we keeping yeah. this one? <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I think I think you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. I think the idea that you could get a, a TJD back or somebody like that, it's a good thing. We should be embracing it, not not criticizing it. Okay, I got I've got one to throw at you specifically, Galen. How are you preparing students for the changing landscape? Because obviously there it goes two ways. The athletes have more money, but there's also a, you know, a cottage industry that's 
sprung up overnight around that too, because these guys are so busy. It's not like just because they have an NIL deal, they have a ton more time on their hands. They're still going to school. They're still, you know, have all their other obligations, practice, travel for games, all all that stuff. So uh, they need people around them to operationalize the the money and to, to help them bring it in and earn it and create the product that that uh, makes that makes it worth it to the companies. It's an interesting process because some like to some degree, NIL can be very simple. It can be just let's stick race Thompson's picture and his smiling face <laughs> on, on you know, this or this local bank's internet ad. Yeah. And you know, that could be, Hey, that's $50,000 right there or whatever the amount is. Uh, for other athletes, I think particularly for athletes in in Olympic sports or sports that don't generate a lot of television revenue, it does allow those athletes to build an audience and you know create content around themselves and their academic or athletic pursuits or academic pursuits for that matter. And they find that they actually have an audience that's interested in what they're doing. You know, for what I have to do is, you know, if I've got an athlete that's interested in that, how do I cultivate their interest in media? How do I explain how to do things given the tools that they've already got? Cause mm-hmm. they're carrying around a phone that, you know, has 20,000 to $30,000 worth of media equipment from 10 years ago. Yeah. in it. You know, I, you know, you know, so it's like you, you get your iPhone out and you can do uh, really good videos on TikTok or Instagram and build an audience that way. But I also work with students who want to work with athletes mm-hmm. creating content. And that to me is the growth area because, you know, 25 years ago, all of the content for sports was, you know, does the newspaper want to do it or does the television station want to do it? And that's about it. And now it's like, well, I can work for a team. I could work for a league. I could work for an individual athlete and I could create content and go directly to the consumer rather than having to filter it through a newspaper or a TV station. And that has been a a really fascinating thing to navigate because I was, I went to school at the very tail end of the previous era Mm Uh, so I've had to adapt the way that I think, but I enjoy doing it because it is a creator's dream right now yeah. to be able to leverage your talent, your perception, your understanding of of how you and your fellow students or fellow young people consume media. And, you know, y- you run into some problems, you run into time constraints, certainly. But a lot of this stuff, it's like you can shoot something and then edit it on the bus. What are you going to do on the bus? <laughs> What are you, what are yeah. you going to do like, you know, in a hotel room while you're waiting to play Iowa the next day? I mean, you got plenty of time to do stuff. And it's funny, like I'll do seminars with alums and, and older folks and they'll be like, well, shouldn't they be spending that time studying? And it's like, you know what? <laughs> I think they're good. Like they're, young people are media enabled. Like yeah. they, they, they really know how to do this stuff if they want to. And, you know, arming them and helping them to understand how the communication landscape works, what to avoid what to emphasize, how to perform, you know, which is a big part of things. That is the challenge, but it's also a lot of fun. I like that. I mean, they've all become so, you know, so much more savvy. I really think that just, uh, you know, kids of this age and certainly the athletes just seem so much more comfortable in front of a a camera or a a microphone. It almost seems like a natural extension to, to do, to do that, uh, you know, and to take that, to take that ownership. I do wonder, you know, a little bit about maybe what we, what we're losing. I, I've heard uh, Jackie McMullen, uh, probably most, most impactful conversations I've heard about it. You know, what do you lose in having someone else uh, take that perspective? So I am interested to see students get in there to work with the athletes and to see if they can, are able to craft an you know more honest picture because i think that sometimes if it's filtered just through the athlete it they they tend to just like i would if it was if it was me you know skew that <laughs> towards the towards only the the positives and you get into a little bit of a bubble situation where it, it could be less interesting too then you know because part of yeah. part of what makes a compelling story is seeing some faults and watching people overcome those and and i just wonder if we tend i feel like Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like we tend to filter out some of the faults if we're presenting, you know, ourselves out, out there to the world. Well, I, and actually we're going to hit, I think, an example of this a little later on a, <laughs> a grander dramatic scale. Yeah. It's, it's, really, it's a really interesting thing. Um, I was actually just doing a lecture on this earlier today for my sports and social media class where it's like um, now that athletes or teams can create their own media and put it in front of the audience – 
you know, some audience members are like, well, I don't need to hear from the journalist because I can just hear directly from the source. But you lose something in that process. And honestly, it's not so much a problem for the person creating the media as much as it is for the audience and the public, because they a lot of people are not very media savvy. And a lot of people will see something or read something and they will think that that is the truth. And so you really have to, as an audience member now, exposed to all of this additional media that wasn't there before, condition yourself to listen to multiple sources. <laughs> and we're not very good at that as human beings. That's not really what we do. But in sports especially, like you're going to get the athlete's version, you're going to get the journalist's version, and then the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, I do try to talk to to young people, whether they're athletes who are interested in doing social or whether they are students who want to work in this area as content creators, mm. you know, the, even in a TikTok video that's 10, 20 seconds long, you want to have a mini dramatic arc. You want to have conflict. You want to have some level of resolution. And it's funny, like without a lot of formal training, I see a lot of people doing that already. So I think that to some degree that's ingrained and the cream rises to the top. The best content, it's going to engage people. You're going to see that and you're going to say, I need to make some adjustments to what I'm doing based upon what I'm seeing is successful. So that's really, to me, how this all susses out. Because ultimately, if it's good content, people will watch it. And that's what ends up gaming the algorithm. And so you respond to that as a content creator. That's fair. Yeah. I, I, talking about the athlete, giving their talking about stuff like Jackson Davis, right? He just did those interviews, right? So if you went straight from what he says, I'm sure that. A lot of it's true, right? But you, do, you, do you honestly believe that Woodson's giving him the reins to decide all the decisions on what they do this offseason? Like, I, I have a hard time believing he's just said, here, here's the clipboard. Right. Tell me what you want to do, and you can do it. You know, like, so, like, what you're saying, like, people would see that and say, well, I mean, so if they start losing, it's because Woodson just let Jackson Davis do whatever he wanted, right. you know, which probably isn't the case, I'm sure. It's tough. I mean, look, everything's filtered through somebody's individual perception. And and even our reactions to things are filtered through our individual perceptions. You know, oh, so it's like, where does the hall of mirrors like begin <laughs> and end to some degree on that? I do think, you know, taking that particular example, um, it wouldn't shock me if Woodson gave Trace Jackson Davis a lot of decision making because Woodson has been coaching in the NBA for 30 years. Woodson's used to you know, leadership on the team being the secondary coach. And honestly, we've talked about that with IU basketball before. Like, you know, we we praised Tom Crean for the team in 12 and the team in 13, but that was a team that policed itself pretty darn well. Yeah. You know, with between Hulls and Zeller and, uh, you know, and Watford. And I mean, that group, they they did what they needed to do. They They took care of each other. They made sure they were doing the things that had to be done. And a lot of the problems that IU teams have had recently, I think, has been a lack of that kind of internal leadership. I mean, that – so I, I wouldn't be shocked if something like that, probably not in the terms that you're talking about, occurred. But I do think that, you know, the idea is, okay, here's a fourth-year senior. You go back and, you know, you read about the Bob Knight era. Like, the idea was, yeah, Knight's the coach and he's the dictator on things, but – the seniors are the ones out there saying, look, this is how we do things at Indiana. Yeah. I think that's probably what Woodson's trying to do if that's indeed the setup that we've seen we're seeing moving forward. I mean, I think it's I mean, it's great that Trace has taken the initiative yeah. to do that stuff. I'm not I'm all about that, you know, yeah. like, especially his comment about the the drugs, right? Like if you get caught, you're out. You right. know, now talking about what you were saying now, people would probably think now there's been a lot of people doing drugs <laughs> because he said that, right? Yeah. I'm sure there's been trouble you know but we haven't known about but i'm sure it's not as much as some people in their mind have exploded that it's you know all the players were doing it you know as soon as i saw the uh, the, some of the quotes coming out i was like i'm just gonna turn off notifications i don't i don't need i don't need to hear everybody else's opinion on this because you know so i'm i I understand what you're saying it's kind of like the the xavier johnson thing with the speeding it's like you know there's the People love to take things and turn them into their own morality plays. Mm -hmm. And sometimes college students just screw up and do things that they shouldn't do. And we don't have to attribute larger meaning or larger societal implications to that. And that's, I mean, I work with college students all the time. I think college students get a bad rap. Uh, You know, the college students I work with are great. They're they're talented. They're driven. Uh, They're much better at what they do than I was when I was their age doing the same thing. And I made the same sorts of mistakes. 
maybe not driving a hundred down Walnut. But, you know, I mean, but, not that but, you didn't think about it. Well, you know, I drove a hundred somewhere yeah, that I wasn't. Well, I'm sure. to. Uh, you know, so these these are the kinds of things that I I try not to get too hung up on because I know that essentially social media is a big game of telephone. And, you know, it's this idea that you see something and then you process it through your own filters and you come to a conclusion that may be off the beaten path from what's actually the truth. Better, better, just uh, some of it's just unlucky. Right. And, you know, I think that some of it's bad choices, but I think that the, you know, it does get back to the cult, the culture building that I think that is, that we have been talking about and is important. I mean, Trace Jackson Davis being 22, 23 year old is going to be influential to these guys coming in. And if they they stay for a couple of years and you can get that core built up, you can get those established, you know, those those values established. And I think that that part is, you know, critical to the success, uh, you know, long term of any program. I just don't think there's been a culture of IU basketball for a long time. And I think that's that's a 20 some year thing. I mean, you know, you you. The last Final Four appearance, I think that was the last time that we really saw the IU culture that most people associate with the program, you know, fully on display. And that was essentially the dying breaths of it. It's not to say that there haven't been good teams and good collections of individuals, but it just has felt like there's been this succession of coaches who struggled to develop and foster a culture of winning that could extend beyond one good team or one good player. Mm. And, you know, you look at other programs, you know, UCLA's had trouble with that for years. And it's not that UCLA doesn't get good players, but it's that they've really struggled to build a good culture that those players can come and operate in. Whereas you look at a team like, you know, a Villanova who doesn't, you know, they don't have superstars, generally speaking, they're not going out and getting a bunch of five stars, but they have a dynamite culture. Will that survive the departure of Jay Wright? I think probably not. Yeah. And, you know, that's the thing. It's like these things tend to ebb and flow. And unfortunately, Indiana is in an ebb. You know, they they are in a low rut. And it's very similar to what Indiana basketball was in the 1960s, mm. where, you know, you went from being a team that won two national titles and multiple Big Ten titles in the 40s and 50s to, you know, essentially a 13 or 14 year absence from the national stage, barring one Big Ten title that came out of the blue in 1967. So um, that that's what I think about with all of this. Will it work? It, this actually ties back to the original question you guys asked at the beginning of the podcast, like, was last year successful? Yeah. It'll be almost impossible to accurately answer that until five years down the road when you could look back at this season and say, that was the start of the IU culture building again, or nope, that was another blip on the radar. We just don't know yet. Well, let's uh, look into the the crystal ball here. So <laughs> and get your way too early 2022, 23 uh, prediction. So it's, wow. this is the best, this is the best part to get, get people on the record in, in, <laughs> in late May, early June about that, something that won't start until the fall. What do you guys think? Well, I mean, I mean big 10 champs final four. What are we talking here? so i guess i'll start on this i guess so i look at it this way i think this team has the talent to win the big 10 title i don't know if they'll be able to because when i think even though a lot of talent has left the big 10 this team does not have a culture of even having a winning record in the conference (laughs) let alone winning the conference Mm -hmm. and it does i think in almost every sport it takes a lot of building to get to the point where the culture is there to be able to take advantage of the talent that you've got. I mean, you know, the even teams that you would think would be able to do that, like Purdue, it was the odds on favor to win the Big Ten this year, and they couldn't pull it off because well, there was something just slightly off about that mix of players this year that it's hard to get your head wrapped around. So I think Indiana, it would be a, a, an extreme disappointment to me right now today if they weren't in the top three in the conference. Yeah. Schedule we, you know, we don't know what the schedule is going to look like. The scheduling in the Big Ten is so jacked up in terms <laughs> of strength and who's playing who. Yeah. It's like you could be the best team in the conference and finish two games out of first place. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, so so that's how I look at the Big Ten. And as far as the national, uh, you know, the NCAA tournament, I think, again, it's like can a team that has won one play-in game in the NCAA tournament in the last five, six seasons – can they really be a Final Four contender when you haven't experienced success at that level? If everything breaks right, sure. But again, I think what would be a nice building block is make the Sweet 16 and take your chances on whoever you play in that round. 
rather than saying, well, it's Final Four or bust because we're never, you're not going to have a, another collection of talent this good again. Because the idea would be if you do really well this year, that becomes a building block for next year and the year after. And that's essentially how I'm looking at this season. It would be gravy if they managed to make it past that. But it's kind of like that 2011-2012 team for IU, which nobody had any expectations for. A lot of people were picking them to go to the NIT. They end up you know, finishing like fifth in the conference and making the Sweet 16. That was an unqualified success. Yeah. I kind of think that would be a really – that would be a great season for this program right now. I would for take sure. that. I would bite your arm off if you offered <laughs> me that today. So. Sweet 16. I mean, for me, I, I mean, I agree with what you're saying. I mean, as an IU fan, I, I hope more, like we always do, right? I mean, I feel like with the guys that we coming in, you know, I don't know. I mean, would you say that the talent on this team as far as talent alone – it's probably got to be the best talent we've had in a while. I mean, Hood Shafino yeah. is probably, I mean, the problem is, is I think we've been burned the last couple times with five stars. I'm not saying Bates isn't going to be good. I'm just right. saying like when he came in, we all thought maybe he would play more, right? He'd be more impactful his freshman year, you know? So I think that we're kind of taking the two guys that are coming in this year that are five stars and saying, okay, are these guys even going to play? Right. You know, because that's just that's what well, we're doing because that's trying to justify if they don't, right? I think the recruiting is different now than it has been in the previous couple of, of coaches' eyes. You know, it, it felt like Archie got like you know, he like getting Romeo Langford was supposed to be the thing that really pushed the Archie Miller era into a different echelon and then it up kind of being a millstone around the program's neck for the year he was here. Not that Romeo wasn't a very talented player, but Romeo was such a ball dominant player and was had to be the focal point of the offense that it sucked a lot of the oxygen out of what was already a offense that didn't have a lot of oxygen in it in the first place. And there wasn't a lot of leadership elsewhere on the team. There wasn't a lot that you could point to and say, this is what carries them through the tough times. I think Lander was a similar thing where, you know, Lander shouldn't have reclassified, but Archie's like, I need to get this kid because he's a five-star kid in state. And people are asking questions about my recruiting and how it's actually playing out on the floor. You know, I think the, there's clearly talent on this roster and I like the, the skill sets that most of the players have. I think the question is, what's the development process like? Because that, to me, was the biggest problem with Archie's era. Was yeah, that you, the said, development... you said break right? Who who breaks right on this team to make to push them yeah. into unexpected territory? Well, I think you mentioned Tamar Bates. Now, Tamar Bates had not a disastrous freshman season. It just was not a season that you look at and you say, "Wow, that was overwhelming." You know, he only played about thirty percent of available minutes. He shot 30% from three. He really struggled with the ball at times, but he also had a lot going on. He had a kid, uh, you know, you know, back in like January or February. He, you know, that, that I mean, I've, I've had two kids. That takes your mind off oh, a lot definitely. of things. Like, I can't imagine it as an 18 or 19-year-old. Um, you know, and, and so I think you got to be patient in that situation and realize this is a talented player, but it's a, you know, he's a player that has to go through some coaching and learn that, I can't just out-talent the people I'm playing against. You know, I think it's a little different with, you know, the kids coming out of Mount Verde. Uh, it, it's that or Mount Verde. Yeah. Uh, like, like those Either kids one. have been playing against really high-level talent. I think that they're going to be a little more ready to go. Hmm. It's just going to be a matter of how well do they fit what Indiana's looking for. Now, I look around the rest of the roster. A lot of it is, okay, if Trace Jackson Davis has the exact same year that he had last year, Indiana's still pretty good. Yeah. If he can add an 18-footer to that and shoot it at, you know, 45%, it doesn't even have to be, like, you know, up in the 50s like the rest of his shooting is. Well, now that's a big weapon that's been added to the repertoire that IU didn't have before. If Jordan Geronimo, who was a promising player, but his production was still pretty weak, there were actually several games where he just kind of disappeared during Big Ten season. If he can be a consistent performer the whole season – if he can continue to shoot well from outside, if he continues to be fearless, like now you've got a guy who could be a starter at the three, could play at the four. Um, it gives you a lot of flexibility and versatility in the lineup. Uh, they have to find outside shooting. I, I, I think that that's, that's going to be the difference between this being a very good team and potentially a great team. But you've got people 
both coming in. C.J. Gunn set the Indiana high school record for most threes in a game. Uh, Banks looks pretty good shooting the ball. Jalen Huchifino, ironically, doesn't look that great shooting from outside, but he brings other things. Yeah. And it's like not everybody has to do everything. I was talking with Scott about this on the podcast the other day. So if you get increased, you know, better performance out of three or four of the guys coming back and you are able to add some freshmen who can be impact without having to be relied upon to do the bulk of the scoring or the bulk of the rebounding, now you increase the talent level, you increase the practice level, and you give yourself more options in a game. Whereas last year, you know, you got some games where you're like, I don't know who Indiana's going to play in this game. Like, who are they going to put on the floor to counter this guy or to score in this situation? It was always one of those things where it felt like they were two pieces short. Well, I feel like Hood Shafino is going to bring a different aspect than Parker did. Parker was a better shooter, obviously, but he's a playmaker. So he's going to be able to get to the lane. Maybe he gets Miller Cop more open shots. You know, like, or maybe he's able to throw alley-oops to trace or race. You know, like, things that we weren't getting from Parker, right? Yeah, yeah well, I mean, and look, Parker and Miller Cop, for that matter, I think both suffered from the same issue, which is that they had a very slow release on their shots. And so shots that might have been open for some players, by the time they got into their mechanics and, and you know, got ready to shoot, there was already a defender closing them out. Um, you know, I think having a higher level of athleticism on this team is going to be key, especially on the defensive end. And, you know, what made last year such a difficult mix from a roster perspective, why I always say that the roster was really mismatched, is that the two guys who shot best from outside uh, at the beginning of the year in Cop in and, and Stewart were not great on the defensive end. And, you know, fortunately, I think what saved IU season, weirdly enough, was that Xavier Johnson started figuring out how to shoot effectively from outside. He ends up shooting like 37, 38% from three. And, you know, I think if you can bring in players who can bring a higher level of athleticism on the defensive end, build off of that, you've got your top three offensive players already on the roster. You've got Xavier Johnson, Race Thompson, and Trace Jackson Davis. If you get higher levels of production from anybody else, either in the starting lineup or coming off the bench, that's gravy. Hmm. Uh, you know, but you've got your kind of your big three from an offensive perspective, and there are three guys that are really difficult to defend against. That's what I'm excited about with this team. Obviously, they have to actually play. You have to figure out what your starting lineup is. Do you do you keep starting cop at the three? Do you plug Geronimo in at the three? Do you do you go small ball? Uh, you know, I mean, you've got like you've got five or six different configurations. We were trying to guess starting lineups on the podcast. Uh, you know, earlier this week, I can't do it. I don't know what direction they're going to go. I'm excited to find out. It's like yeah. it's like a present I haven't opened yet. That's a good problem. To so, have. so who did you go with? I mine was uh, Johnson. What I have Johnson. Uh, I started with Hood Shafino, and then I switched to to, uh, to Bates. But I'm I'm not sure about those two. I think I'd love to see Bates start because I think that would be yeah. he he's the perfect two if he can get his outside shot going for this particular group. Geronimo at the three, Thompson at the four, and obviously TJD at the five. But that's a that's almost a five-out type of lineup if Trace Jackson Davis can add an outside shot. And that's going to be, to me, the big question. But I could also see a scenario where they run three guards or they've got banks at the four in certain situations because he's so you know lanky and, and yet can shoot from outside. Um, you know, I, I'm really excited to see what they end up settling on because ultimately I think guys are going to have to prove in practice that they deserve to be on the floor. And I think I – at this point, I trust Woodson to at least have a good evaluative process. Uh, I think last year he stuck with upperclassmen because he was scared about what his underclassmen might do if they were out there for yeah. too long. And also because I just don't think that many of them had the requisite talent level to be able to keep Indiana in some of the games that they had to win down the stretch. Now, might be interest more interesting to see who finishes the games rather than who starts. Yeah, It's true. I just I think that uh, if, if Trace can get a 10-foot shot, right <laughs> – I'm just 10 he's to 12 foot shot. He's backing it in. You're no, at 16, Galen. He's down, he's down think, to 10 feet. <laughs> well, no, I'm just saying from the free throw line. Well, let's go. What's that? What is that? 15. 15 feet. If he hits a 15 foot jumper, then that makes Xavier Johnson so tough to guard. Yeah. Like they have right. to go out there. So I feel like if, if he can prove that, I my lineup would probably be Johnson, Hood, Bates, race and trace because you just run you just run pick and rolls right if hood's a if hood can play a good pick and roll then xavier's a good spot up shooter 
It's not like he can't make shots. And then Bates is a good spot-up shooter, too. So, I, And you have two big guys already in Race and Trace to, to help defensively. Right. Now, look, I, I think there's if you get anything from Trace Jackson Davis in terms of being able to step outside, shoot, and make it occasionally, that is more than you've been able to do before in terms of loosening up the way the offense is running. It, you know, it gets Indiana out of this you know, chaining Trace Jackson Davis to the post. And and then essentially that also means that you've got to have Race Thompson in the general vicinity to rebound or do things. Uh, you know, I, that kind of flexibility would really help. But it's also, you know, can you continue to have, you know, Race Thompson went from like 21% to 30% from three this last year. Can you get a little more out of him? Um, you know, the, the, you go through that process with everybody on the roster. It's not a big ask to say, hey, what if everybody got a little bit better? next year uh you know it's it it seems weird because we're you know you, you look at some of the guys that aren't here anymore from the last few years and they didn't really get better that to me is going to be the mark of whether this program is actually moving in the right direction and so you're you're starting lineup maybe 100 percent accurate you know or maybe somebody different i'm fine with whatever as long as we're seeing an improvement among the players in terms of understanding what they have to do on a night in night out basis. And they can actually execute those things. We'll we'll see. We'll see if the uh, season is successful, but I can say that the uh, off season has been successful for, we've got this much to talk about and that's, that's two in a row for us. Well, Hey, we're running, we're starting to run short of time. So I want to switch to our last topic and talk a little bit about winning time, which was the show on HBO. If people haven't seen it, uh, that was uh, uh, based on the Los Angeles Lakers and a, book by Jeff Perlman. Uh, listen to the book on on audio on my drive. Really good and, and entertaining too. Uh, but I think the biggest part of this, and I, the reason I wanted to ask you, Galen, about this is the backlash that's come ag- against this because it is coming up against, again, what is the previously perceived reality, whether it's Jerry West saying that he's going to take it to the Supreme Court uh, to to get them to take the character down or Magic Johnson coming out with his own documentary on Apple to kind of, you know, muddy the waters or give a different perspective. So I just want to see, did you get a chance to watch it? What did you think of it as an entertainment product? And then how do you see this type of programming fitting into the larger media land sports media landscape yeah i I mean i haven't watched the whole thing but i've I've watched enough of it that i've gotten a sense of things i also read the book that it was based off of showtime by jeff perlman really good book highly recommended if you're a sports fan um look it this goes back to what we were talking about earlier it's this idea of you're gonna get these dramatic reimaginings of things in in these sorts of situations and it's tough for people to get their heads wrapped around if the people are still alive. Like, it's one thing if you dramatize, you know, a group of people that have been dead for a while. But when you've got people that are still among us and they feel like, you know, they're aggrieved because they don't like how they're being portrayed, generally public sentiment's going to fall on their side in sympathy and support. I don't have as much of a problem with it because I know what the history is. Like, I've read the books yeah. and I've followed all of these things. I do think there's a legitimate question about, well, what about the average sports fan? Like, what, what do we like? What if they're misinformed? But if you watch the Magic Johnson documentary on the Lakers, that's not exactly, you know, an unvarnished look at the truth. Yeah, you know, Scotty there, Pippen of, didn't, didn't love the last dance. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a lot of varnish on those things. And so we're kind of caught in this weird space. There's so much content in media right now, and there's so much of a, you know, there's like a flood of if this is the greatest time ever to be a sports fan, watching television, watching movies, reading things, you've got more content than we ever had when we were growing up. But the downside is going back to what we talked about earlier, you really have to do you have to take the time to watch and read multiple things because you're going to miss details or you're going to get the wrong impression from the dramatizations or the documentaries that are being financed by the, the athletes you've got to essentially mesh those things together and make a decision on your own. I mean, I, I don't mind it as much as some people, but I deal with media all the time. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's anytime you're trying to dramatize something that's recent or relatively recent. I mean, even the, you know, the Theranos stuff with, uh, with Elizabeth Holmes or, you know, the Steve jobs movie or the, the social network, which is always my favorite one. It's like, that's a movie that's almost a word for word adaptation of a book mm. that, 
you know, has all this inside stuff and there's no public sourcing. It's like just a bunch of anonymous sources that wrote it. And it may be all accurate, but yeah. you're like, is that actually the case or yeah. what? Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a time period where there, you know, reality is subjective to a lot of people. And I do think that you should at least know that if you're watching it, but most people unfortunately aren't going to take the time to go through that thought process. I mean, I, I think it's entertaining, you know, I, I mean, you take it for what it is, yeah. you know, and everything it says that everything isn't by the book right it, it says right. that some of it's dramatized or however they worded it to make it better i mean i think it's more these people are getting upset because it's messing with their brand mm. yeah. you know like their, their image of how they want people to see them they don't want to see jerry west doesn't want to see people seeing him as <laughs> this e this mean man that right. hated everybody he wants to be known as the great scorer that he was and the you know the executive not the you know so that's but that's his perspective right it's like what you said about the athlete giving their side and you know other people giving the side i'm sure like the jordan documentary was not by the book right i'm sure jordan made sure that he looked unbelievably good in that documentary <laughs> it's it's just you know it's the nature of things and it's it's the it's the you know there used to be it used to be so expensive to get into media you know, you, you had to have somebody do a film on you or do yeah. a television special on you or write a story about you. And there were gatekeepers. And that was bad, too. That was bad in a different way because there were so many stories that weren't told. Mm. And, you know, all the stuff we talk about now with Title IX and women's sports and all of these, you know, women, I think, you know, have a real legitimate complaint about, well, you know, why are women's sports considered to be not worthy of, of getting on television? And it's, it's like, well, there's not an audience for them. Well, why isn't there an audience for them? It's because they were never shown. Because in the old model, they just weren't considered to be newsworthy. And it's like, well, that's you can't really make that argument today. And so it's like we've gone from an era of scarcity to an era of, era of, of abundance. Mm. And there's problems with both. And I don't think that there's an equilibrium that's like a perfect world. Um, and, you know, you, you make a great point about branding. I don't know if, you know, it's like Jerry West, everybody knew he was uh, a bit of a curmudgeon. Everybody knew that he was a bit of, uh, you know, he was a worry ward. He was constantly complaining. He, you know, he, he, you read that in the book. Like, it's not like yeah. this was just invented. I think it's, there's a big difference between reading words on a page and seeing somebody acting that out. <laughs> like that really is ultimately what bothers passionate, me. passionate love scene uh, yeah. inserted here. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, and, and I get that. I get, you know, and it's, it's, and I think he's it's a, a he's a tender lover. He just wants people to know that. <laughs> That's right. You know, so, so I, I get the argument there and I do think that it's a reasonable argument to yeah. make. I don't think there's a good answer to it other than, you know, avail yourself of all the media and understand that you can't fully trust anything that you watch and you really shouldn't be doing that anyway. I mean, I think if, you know, our current political coverage should be proving that as much as anything else at this but point. Robert said it was entertaining. Is that, is that the core of, of that though? Is that what you should, you should be going towards? Cause it's kind of, I mean, it's, there's two, well, there's two perspectives. Cause you could say that Jordan's wasn't accurate, but you know, at least the facade of it was, this is how right. it happened. It, this is clearly an entertainment product. So that's why I think it feels different. You know, it's clean, they yeah. don't seem to care that they've taken liberties with a lot of the thing. Like Jeannie Buss is all of a sudden working for the Lakers, even though she would have still been in high school, you know. And right. Just as, well, and, and those things are problematic. I agree. But I mean, Hoosiers took significant liberties with the Milan High School fair. story and no one really cares. You yeah. know, I mean, the the, you know, the Norman Dale character was 29 years old in, <laughs> in reality. He wasn't a 55 yeah. year old guy who assaulted a college basketball <laughs> player and then joined the Navy. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, now, did that does that reduce? I mean, maybe that's the issue. It's like, well, that was a real story with some fictional stuff put in. Breaking yeah. away was the same. I, right. I don't know. I, you know, I, I think the problem to some degree is the audience is so credulous about what they what is in front of them. People will believe things that they see or read, whereas before we just viewed everything as entertainment. Like the whole idea of the Hollywood movie was like, well, this says an era of unreality about it, but it helps you to learn a little bit about the thing that happened. Not word for word. It's not just a complete re retelling of the story from beginning to end, because frankly, most of the time those things are boring. 
Well, I, lo- I love it. I love the, the conversation. And Galen, I so appreciate you coming on this evening. Hopefully you'll come back again closer to the season. We can do our not quite as early predictions uh, after we've got some more IU information. And everyone should definitely check out Crimson Cast. That's one of my favorite uh, IU podcasts. Just a nice, nice balance and a lot of fun that you guys have. Well, I appreciate you guys having me on. I appreciate the kind words about the podcast. Appreciate the gear. The gear yeah, is awesome. great. Love what you guys do. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a niche that needed to be filled for a long time. And um, I mean, I wish I was a fan of some of these other schools because I would <laughs> I just I, I can't wear Syracuse stuff around. Yeah, I know. My <laughs> wife gets mad at me because I always have uh, other school stuff on. I'm like, I don't care. It looks cool. I've just got I just got over it. She she can't do it. She's a Hoosier for life. Only. That's great. No, but I, I really appreciate what you guys do. And I appreciate you taking the time to have me on and uh, look forward to having more conversations with you in the future. Thank you for listening to the 19.9 podcast. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, make sure you do. And while you're at it, leave us a rating or review. Five stars only, like the basketball camp. We also have links to all of 19.9 social media so you never miss a release. Until next time, 